Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books and Anthropology, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Amir Lehman. Today, we are talking to Susan Gall and Judith Irvine about their book, Signs of Difference, published in 2019 by Cambridge University Press. Dr. Irvine is the Edward Sapir Distinguished University Professor and Emerita of Linguistic Anthropology at the University of Michigan. And Dr. Gall is the May and Sidney G. Metzl Distinguished Service Professor of Anthropology, Linguistics, and of Social Sciences at the University of Chicago. It is my great pleasure to welcome them now. Dr. Gall, Dr. Irvine, welcome. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So perhaps we can mm. uh, perhaps we can start with you both telling us a little bit about how you became anthropologists and how you came to work uh, on this topic in particular. Well, um, greetings, Amir. I'm Sue Gal, and um, uh, I thought that we would we, we decided that I would start this. Um, it's nice to meet you, and thanks so much for inviting us to the podcast. And um, it's good that you asked about our pasts in this first question, because Judy and I have been work, wrote a lot about um, all sorts of topics in linguistic anthropology and sociolinguistics ooh, for almost uh, 20 years well before embarking on this collaboration, actually even before getting to know each other. Uh, For me, um, I probably became interested in questions about linguistic difference because I was raised bilingually as what today would be called a heritage speaker. But most of my friends had similar families in New York City. So I didn't even realize that this fact was worthy of attention until the end of college. At that point, I had already fallen in love with anthropology as a way of thinking about social and cultural variation, how vastly different human lives can be organized and understood. And then in my final term in college, I took a graduate course, bravely, from a visiting professor, and the course was called Ethnolinguistics. The the instructor was a student of Mary Haas's. Um, which this course was both intriguing and way over my head. But along with feminist anthropology, which I was also studying, and questions about power, it piqued my interest. And that's how I ended up at UC Berkeley for graduate school. Now, unbeknownst to me at that time, Berkeley was the West Coast headquarters in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, uh, of what came to be called sociolinguistics and linguistic anthropology, which was just then efflorescing. I was very lucky. Berkeley had an interdisciplinary group of scholars. They called themselves the Language Behavior Research Lab that consisted of people like John Gumpertz, Dan Slobin, Susan Irvin Tripp, and Paul Kay, who some of you might have heard of, who had a big national grant that funded many of us. It was an exciting time. We had seminars on face-to-face interaction, women's speech, contextualization cues, linguistic universals. My dissertation work was on the social determinants of bilingualism in Austria, a very different settlement than the one in our book, but dealing with some of the same issues. 
Like, what does it mean socially when everyone speaks two languages? And who decides what it means? So questions of power. And how and why do such arrangements change? And I've been interested in similar questions ever since. Um, okay, I think it's my turn. And uh, hi from me too. I'm Judy Urban. And thanks from me as well for inviting us to this podcast. <clears throat> well, how exactly I came to be an anthropologist is lost in the mists of time. But one thing I do remember puts me in good company with Malinowski. Supposedly, he got interested in anthropology uh, before he went to the Trobriands and from reading The Golden Bough. And when I was about 12 years old, I would sneak into my father's study where I wasn't supposed to go when he wasn't there, and I would read passages from that very book. The purple prose, the mysterious rituals, and all these things, they all seemed very titillating. Well, to me at 12. Anyway, um, also though, as, as with Sue, my family was very multilingual, and although I was not really raised bilingually, there was a lot that sank in anyway. And the atmosphere was certainly one that um, involved attention to language. My older sister uh, tried to police the situation a bit because she wanted to make sure that she and I sounded American, not weird like our immigrant parents. So um, in college, I was an anthropology major. There wasn't any linguistic anthropology, but I decided I wanted to take something unusual. So I signed up for Arabic, which turned out to be taught with a very anthropological approach, maybe unsurprisingly because the instructor was Mary Catherine Bateson, the daughter of Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson. Uh, my main graduate training was at Penn, the East Coast headquarters of what, as Sue said, became sociolinguistics and linguistic anthropology. It was an, ex an incredibly exciting program. We students really felt that we were on the cutting edge of something, and that is just such an experience for students that um, I would like every student to have that. It's not necessarily as easy as it was for me to have it, but Anyway, I studied there with Del Himes, Bill LeBov, and Irving Goffman, among others, and David Sapir for African Linguistic Anthropology. In fact, in my first year, I hadn't decided I wanted to go to Africa, but David gave a party at his house. Uh, he'd worked in Senegal, and he was playing Senegalese music in the background. And I decided right away, I want to go where they do that. <laughs> And I did. Uh, I first went there in 1970, and I worked not exactly on music, but on many kinds of verbal performance, including everyday talk, and on how these genres were socially situated, especially how they were linked to the social hierarchies and local level politics that people in my field site were so engaged with. And later, that kind of topic led me toward thinking about ideology and its involvement with language. It's wonderful to, to get a sense of, of uh, what informed your interest in, in, in this book. So you, you begin the book by describing the concept of language ideologies. So could you explain for us what that is and why semiotics are particularly well-suited for its analysis? 
Um, okay, I'll begin on this one. Um, uh, on the concept of language ideologies. Uh, language ideology is basically ideology that is focused on language or talk or discourse. And it concerns how ideas and assumptions about language are linked with power and politics. Uh, it's also, therefore, about differentiation because power relations are concerned with difference. So in some social domain, who has a greater say than somebody else? Uh, whose social or personal projects get to move forward, or at least to move ahead more easily? Well, language ideology as a focus of research in linguistic anthropology took off after about 1990, after uh, people working in the field had become increasingly interested in languages' intersections with political economy. Sue and I actually each wrote papers on that separately. And people had become interested in general with power relations in talk and in other linguistic practices. The term ideology has a complicated history, of course, uh, with both pluses and minuses for us. What we like about it is the link with power and differentiation. And this is a link that doesn't work so well with a concept of culture, for example. Culture tends to suggest sharing, uh, at least for within the set of people who have it. Um, it suggests homogeneity of ideas among these people. It suggests tradition rather than leading toward politics, toward consistent systems of ideas rather than competing ones. And it even tends to point you toward ethnicity. It does not immediately point you toward power, or differentiation, or toward the ways difference is entailed in social relations, whereas ideology, I think, does. Uh, ideology suggests a difference in subject positions with different points of view on their social surroundings. Ideology, as a concept, uh, incorporates a point of view on society and politics and power. But what about the minuses? Uh, I'm not going to pretend there aren't any. A drawback, in a way, to the term ideology is that it's often assumed to mean false consciousness and the ways that people in power pull the wool over other people's eyes and make them act to their own disadvantage. Now, I wouldn't say that people in power never try to do that. Sometimes they may even succeed. But if you talk about false consciousness, that implies that you, researcher, analyst, know the truth in some absolute sense. And I don't think that we want to claim that we have some unique handle on truth, even if truth is what we seek. But besides that, if everything somebody believed were totally false, they couldn't survive. So their beliefs, their view of the world, must at most be only partially false. We find it more appropriate to think of ideologies as partial. Partial in that they represent only one perspective on the world, among others, and partial uh, because they are interested in the political sense of interest, connected with social projects. But even this problematic aspect of the, the term ideology about false consciousness has its better side in a way. Ideology in common parlance 
is usually something other people have, while we have a truer idea about what's going on. So it already entails a differentiation of ideas. And during the Cold War, Americans would talk about Soviet or communist ideology, for example, and the same applied vice versa. And no matter how totalizing a particular ideology might seem from the inside, it always posits that there may be infidels, people who fail to believe. So again, there's differentiation. Still, I want to point to some ways in which our discussions in this book, and in fact, in recent years, even uh, before the book, uh, have moved beyond the treatment of language ideology when the topic first became current in our field. One of these ways that we've moved beyond it, I think, is to characterize, characterize ideology as a regime of value. That is, that assigns differing value, importance, implications in some domain. This gets you away from the false consciousness stuff. And it also points to how a regime of value sweeps up other kinds of signs in addition to linguistic signs. A, reg a regime of value tends to spread, tends to leak into whatever you're doing and thinking about. And another move that we emphasize in our book is that we often prefer to focus on ideological work rather than ideology as an object of research. Ideology, the noun, too easily suggests a thing, like a rock that might hit somebody over the head. Look, they're hit by ideology. Or a cloud that hangs over them. And to suggest that it might be something internally consistent and bounded and maybe even static. Instead, ideological work points to social action. It points to how people develop practices that draw on assumptions engage semiotic processes, and mobilize social projects. The ideological constructs are, that are developed in such ideological work are always emergent. They're part of a changing world, and although they may persist over a long time, or parts of them may, they may also evolve and shift along with the world that they take part in. So I'll turn this over to Sue now. <coughs> Thanks. Um, so the other part of the question you asked, Amir, was um, why is semiotics well suited to the analysis of ideological matters, ideological work? And um, let me emphasize that ideological work, as Judy just said, um, is social, fundamentally social, and power-laden. So it Im implies communication. And semiotics is the study of communication through signs. So that, um, that definition will be very useful to us. In trying to figure out the role of signs we in, in ideological work and regimes of value, we started from the human ability to focus on figure and contrast, that the ability to pick out something from a background. And this is so fundamental that it even precedes any sign activity. It is evident in human perception, in cognition, all, at all levels of communication. Now, there are several Western and Eastern traditions for studying signs. But what we found most useful, and I think increasingly many others are also turning to this, is the sign theory proposed by the American pragmatist philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce in the 
turn of the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, for Peirce, who was kind of a strange bird, but very smart, anything in the world can be a sign if it is taken to be a sign by someone. Now, of course, there are, con- uh, there are conventional sign relations, as in language, and also some conventional ones like the proverbial, where there's smoke, there's fire, so smoke is a sign of fire. But what he said is that we can ask of any material or cognitive or emotional phenomenon, any phenomenon, what does it, what does it mean? What can it be a sign of? And in fact, in our book, we considered all possible phenomena. Language, of course, remains important, but also gestures, clothing, material objects, music, non-human phenomena, even stuff like storms. And it can be all considered in a single framework. Now, this focus on interpretation, on what you take a, what you take to be a sign and what the sign can be pointing to, actually matches a, a direction in sociolinguistics these days that is attending to what they call listening as opposed to only speaking. So what we asked in our book is how do existing regimes of value direct attention to even the simplest noticing of something as possibly a sign? And then a sign of what? And um, we also took very seriously the idea that signs um, and communication are matters of action. I think Judy also pointed to this um, uh, just a minute ago. Action and meaning are two sides of a coin. Uh, Through acts of attention, people notice a phenomenon and make guesses that it, it might be a sign. And what it might point to, its object, the object, the semiotic object, which need not be a thing, uh, but some phenomenon. And then they might act on that knowledge. So we have this this continuing chain of action and um, uptake. Now, Peirce calls such guesses interpretants. But I've always found that um, interpretant is confusing for people. It's not a person, but a guess. And so we have called them conjectures. People use all sorts of everyday background knowledge to form conjectures. So let me give you an example. My friend is wearing a long black coat. I wonder, why is he going somewhere fancy? So I make a guess, right? Or is he in mourning? And then, aha, no, wait, I recall, he's in a theater piece. I think he's playing a priest. So you see how knowledge comes together with the guessing about signs. Now, each act of conjecture conjecture implicates further conjectures or requires revisions, like the case that I just um, mentioned. Conjectures are always socially located in situations and in longer histories. And in our approach, signs are not separate from the social world they represent. It's not a matter of deciphering a code. It's a really big difference between a Persian and other kinds of semiotics. Signs are embedded in the flow of social life that we enter in midstream, as with the black coat. And this is how knowledge grows, but it also suggests on a larger scale, historical contingency in the social world. So social actors in conjecturing about possible signs always have, as Judy said, projects, interests, motivations, expectations. That is the stuff of ideological work. The kind of discourses and knowledge practices that a person has access to, which will vary according to the person's social location, that constrains the kind of conjectures they can make, defining their perspective, their point of view. Now, 
if we're going to think about point of view, it implies that there are other points of view and comparisons between them. And one thing I've always found really interesting is that comparisons are ironic. You have to point, posit some kind of similarity to make a comparison possible. Yet comparisons usually discover difference. And our book is called Signs of Difference, as you said, Amir. But it is equally about how people categorize signs and everything they stand for as possibly similar. We should also remember that comparisons are never innocent. Situated comparisons of people, projects, cultural materials, as much by us as by other people, these comparisons create and reproduce politically powerful differentials. And this is the way power works, through comparative valuation of people types, social worlds, that is defining what is valuable, what is persuasive, or what can be taken for granted in social life. Um, so um, we have found that the same semiotic process undergirds our own comparisons and those of others, and we will come back to this. It's a very abstract um, process that we have um, proposed and posited and tried to show exists. I'm going to say just a few words about it now so we can return to it later. So first, as I mentioned, attention, contrast, and background knowledge are where we start. They enable a person to posit something as a sign, an indexical sign, guessing what it points to or is produced by. An index draws attention. It tells us nothing more. You need a further conjecture that posits possible qualities of the indexical sign in comparison with some other index. Speaking often indexes the speaker, say a person is heard to speak slowly. But as you know, slow is always a comparative quality. You have to compare it to something that's fast to decide what counts as slow. So slow is compared to a person who speaks fast. That comparison forms what we call an axis of differentiation a juxtaposition of the perceived qualities of those indexical signs. And then by a process we call rheumatization, and we will get back to the mysteries of rheumatization, contrasting qualities perceived in the indexical signs are taken to resemble the qualitative contrasts in what the signs are taken to index. And that's how you can hear slow speech and fast speech, and it seems to depict something about the slowness and fastness of the speakers themselves. Now, what kind of difference of slowness and fastness? Well, that's going to take a lot more uh, work, a lot more ideological work. Is it that fastness is smartness, like thinking fast, or does it mean that you're overhectic? And slowness, does that mean that you're thinking slowly and are stupid, or does it mean you're laid back and leisurely? So there's a lot of interpretation to be done here, but but the, the, the basics of rheumatization have to do with this relationship between the signs and what they're supposed to represent. Um, and I said taken to be representative of the object because these conjectures are not observations. They're not real evidence. They are part of ideological work. Another aspect of differentiation is something we've called fractal recursivity. That is the contrast of qualities created by the axis in this case, I was saying fast and slow, is reiterated, comparing larger or smaller sets of objects using the same contrast. So I'm sure you, everybody has the experience of relatively slow, let's say, speakers, um, even within the group of fast ones. 
So you have nothing but fast speakers, but even within that, you can subdivide and make relatively slow ones, and that's fractal recursivity. And finally, erasure. Very important. Erasure makes some phenomena invisible, whether it's linguistic forms, types of persons, or particular activities. They just go unnoticed. In fact, we found that whatever doesn't fit the ideologized schema gets ignored or explained away. So that's the first introduction, and we'll come back later to how these work together, and also in the ethnographies. This is, this is also wonderfully fascinating. So after this introduction where you lay this all out, the first substantive section of the book presents two ethnographic cases, one from Senegal and the other from Hungary. What, places, what place do these cases have in your larger agenda? Uh, okay, I'll start off on this one. Uh, these cases derive, of course, from ethnographic research that we had done quite separately for many years um, in Africa, in my case, and in Eastern Europe, in Sue's case. And this was before we ever thought of embarking on this project. And one of the roles, in fact, that these two ethnographic chapters play in the book is to illustrate how our general approach can illuminate the analysis of any particular ethnographic case. That is, the approach takes you to analytical points you might not otherwise have thought of, although, of course, it must always be responsible to evidence. But what I'd like to focus on here first, anyway, is how this section of the book is, in effect, about comparison, uh, because it was comparing the two cases that launched our collaborative work. You need to recognize, as I'm sure you do, the vast differences between these two cases. One comes from a town of mainly Wolof speakers in Senegal, the other from a town of German speakers in Hungary. The size, more or less the size of the towns, is about the only thing that these two places have in common. Well, they're people. Okay. These sites, though, have very different histories, ecologies. Uh, there's, the languages come from totally different language families, and they have different political settings. There's a difference between recently colonized people in the Senegal case and in the case of German speakers in Hungary, representatives of a colonizing power. There was the French colonial empire in the Senegal case, the Germanic empires in the Hungary case. Um, there's a population in the Senegal case that had become the ethnic majority within its state, although the Republic of Senegal was only 10 years old when I first started working there. Uh, anyway, between that ethnic majority and a population of German speakers that had become an ethnic and linguistic minority within its state, Hungary. I could go on about the differences. That the point is that there's nothing in the specific histories, languages, political setting, settings, or dominant economies that would lead you to juxtapose these two cases. So we were surprised to find that nevertheless, they revealed some common themes. In both cases, local residents characterized the major social differences within their communities in terms of a contrast between austerity and elaboration. So one set of people within the community was, in both cases, 
was considered austere in talk, in gestures, in personal values, in dress, food preferences, housing, and so forth, while another set of people, in contrast, were considered elaborate, fancy, perhaps hyperbolic, and so on. So how should one even describe this common pattern, let alone account for it? We felt that we could only do so by moving to a more abstract kind of discussion, independent of the particulars of language, history, economy, and so on, though still responsible to those particulars as evidence. Our move was into semiotics as a way of capturing the differentiations people in these two places were making, were attending to, the many signs of social differentiation which these people were assembling into the broad tropic contrasts of austerity versus elaboration. We certainly don't want to claim that this particular trope will be found everywhere. In fact, as we looked into the ethnographic and linguistic literature on other parts of the world, we saw various tropes being drawn upon. The point is, instead, that the semiotic analysis enables comparisons one might not have thought possible. And it allowed us to explore how ideological work applies in many domains, linguistic and otherwise, in more detail. Now, let me say something more about the Senegal case. Um, in the town in Senegal where I worked, there was a pretty conspicuous differentiation between linguistic registers. These registers, that is, these different ways of speaking, were linked to modes of performance and verbal genres, but they were also linked to major social categories, to the types of people who were thought to be the main users of one or the other register. Those categories, those social types, were ranked high and low. One of the categories were verbal performers, speech specialists, deemed, people deemed expert in the arts of communication call them bards, a bardic category. That's not the local term, of course, but it'll do. The other category were mostly farmers, shop owners, and various other things, including the descendants of princes and aristocrats in the pre-colonial kingdoms. Call them nobles or aristocrats. So registers were named for bards and aristocrats and thought to be typical of their speech, respectively. But something important that emerged in the course of even my early fieldwork was that although these differentiations were talked about in absolute terms, their implementation in actual talk depended on contextual particulars, especially who else was present and what the topic was. So given these social categories, calling them aristocrats and bards, though these terms uh, are not exact renderings of what the categories are about, but there aren't good English words for that. Uh, given these social categories um, in a very public setting involving audiences from all walks of local life, the bards will use the bardic register and the aristocrats, the aristocrat register, if they even speak at all, because aristocrats are that austere. But in another setting, if only aristocrats are present, the lower ranked aristocrats will speak more elaborately and in a register whose phonology and morphology are somewhat bard-like. 
and so they will contrast with the more terse, plain speech of the higher-ranked aristocrats. And it's noticing this pattern in my first fieldwork. That was what led me in the direction of what became a concept of fractal recursivity in our book and in our later writings. And the semiotic analysis applies to this case in other ways, too. For example, the linguistic registers were seen as a kind of acoustic imagery, as icons of personality or of temperament. Austerity in talk, a terse style, low pitch, simple, plain syntax, for example, characterized the aristocrat register and was supposed by the locals to reflect an austere temperament and, and to be a sign of self-control that aristocrats were supposed to have. Uh, the contrasting bardic register with its complex morphology and syntax, loudness, high pitch, and rapid speed was supposed to derive from a flamboyant personality. That is, it was taken as a sign of that quality in the personality. And that acoustic imagery concerns another part of the semiotic process of differentiation, the one that we call rheumatization. However, uh, where there are differentiations, there are also unifications too. So when those lower ranking aristocrats and higher ranking aristocrats are assembled in some scene where bards are present too, then lo and behold, the aristocrats are unified, exhibiting behaviors in common, as opposed to what the bards are doing. And one can move to a yet wider grouping. The linguistic registers of Wolof come together in contrast with French, where the Wolof ones were locally thought to be austere, uh, uh, demonstrating self-control and so on, in contrast with the uh, elaborate hyperbolic French. Well, that uh, is a matter of a local linguistic ideology, of course. Um, in Sue's case, the German speakers in Hungary, the particulars are different, but one can still see similar semiotic processes at work. Sue? Oh, um, thanks. I hope my microphone is turned on. So that's, let me add some comments. Um, first, um, on the similarities between the two cases. Um, uh, as, uh, as Judy um, implied, people think of artisans and farmers in the German-Hungarian town where I did, my field, did one of my fieldworks as people types. But they also think of them as voices, or that's another way to say some of what Judy was saying, that anyone can take on these voices if they know how. Uh, similarly to the Wolof case. Uh, the stereotypes among the German-Hungarian bilinguals are strong, and these, uh, the voices are um, voices entirely within uh, German language, two different registers or two different, um, one might call, many people call them dialects of, um, of German. So they're strong for the elderly. And even though there aren't really very many farmers or artisans um, anymore in this, uh, the town uh, called Boy, nevertheless, this, 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 this differentiation of the town, this social and linguistic differentiation lives on. Now, as Judy pointed out, the qualities we found, to our surprise, 
were quite similar in these really vastly different two towns, austerity and elaboration. But elsewhere, other quality contrasts could well be the focus of attention. In another Central European town where I did earlier ethnographic work, a Hungarian minority in Austria, so kind of the flip side of Germans in Hungary, there were striking dialect differences between people who lived close together, the same sort of situation as um, in the Wolof and in the uh, German-Hungarian case. And the dialectologists were baffled. Why are they not affecting each other and speaking like each other? They chalked it up to religious differences. They missed that religious differences are understood locally as character traits, hardworking Protestants versus easygoing Catholics, with lots of other stereotyped qualities and customary differences and clothing differences uh, swept up in that differentiation. Too often, I think, we sociolinguists have been satisfied with naming correlated ethnic or religious or geographic categories without attention to the interactional and semiotic processes that Judy and I are calling attention to. So let me say a few words about the differences from the Wolof case, which are also, I think, really interesting. <clears throat> People in the German-Hungarian town categorically denied any hierarchy between artisans and farmers. Uh, farmers is obvious. Artisans were people who made shoes, they made furniture, uh, they made clothing of various kinds. Uh, the town was a market center. Uh, uh, unlike the Wolof case where ranking was important, these bilinguals created an impression of equality between rich farmers and rich artisans, and they were engaged in erasing or, or ignoring poor people altogether. Now, there were no language specialists, but the artisans were specialists in interactions with people, right, with selling and buying and being middlemen. Uh, so there was a sense in which they were closer to language, and it was the farmers who were the austere ones who were more interested in land and money than they were in expressive forms. Now, as Judy mentioned, uh, Germans in Hungary were a migrant minority population. They still are. And they were, the German group has been in Hungary since the 18th century. But as a result of their migrants and ultimately minority status, they were targets of political demands made by both Hungarian and German nationalist mobilizations in the early 20th century. German nationalists saw them as potential Nazi allies, and they were very much um, uh, mobilized and, and, and uh, um, uh, groups came from central Germany to try to um, uh, convert them to Nazism. Uh, Hungarian nationalists, on the other hand, uh, saw them as alien interlopers. Now, how they dealt with these pressures had effects on their stereotypes, both of themselves and of Germans and of Hungarians, and also on their practices, including their linguistic practices. Um, so um, have changes in the valuation of German and Hungarian standard languages that they learned in school. They have always had schooling in both languages. And this was especially so and has been so after the Cold War and in, as Hungary has entered the membership in the EU. Tracking these changes um, of valuation in the Hungarian and German, valuation of the local distinctions um, between elaborated um, artisans and austere farmers, tracking these 
has allowed us to show history in action how standard languages get swept up in systems uh, in local systems of differentiation um, and end up meaning different things than they do on the national level. And also how the town itself fit into comparisons. Neither a city nor a village, it was a fractally shifting unit for participants. Sometimes they called it one thing, sometimes the other. Uh, finally, let me note a form of erasure that had a particularly dramatic role. Erasure was evident in this German-Hungarian um, bilingual town in all the ways comparable to the Waloff town. Um, but in addition, in the late 20th century, there was no official identity category for speakers as bilingual Hungarians. This simply did not exist as a concept in the country. With centuries of legal residents of Hungary, you might have thought that they would be recognized, but nationalism is quite strong in, um, in Europe, and this is um, part, of its, part of its work, its ethno-linguistic work. Their speech of this, this town was identified uh, by Hungarian monolinguals as um, strange, and they were often asked as they moved around in their own country, what country are you from? but they also sounded foreign and unidentifiable to Germans when they went to Germany. So as a, as a result of having no legal category for this minority until the 1990s, it was hard, to, very difficult for them to mobilize in any way. And the ethnography shows um, what an emotional and political distress this caused for many speakers who felt a double loyalty to both languages. And I think this uh, phenomenon is not unusual for migrants globally to feel this double um, loyalty in situations where it's not exactly permitted uh, officially and legally. So this is another way in which our work can be um, uh, more generally uh, relevant. Wonderful. You, you, uh, in the next section of the book, you uh, begin with a detailed explanation of the sign processes you've been alluding to. Um, in these chapters, what are some of the semiotic concepts and processes that you found important to lay out? Well, I think I'll start on this one. Um, well, you might ask, why bother with signs at all? Once you have these detailed ethnographic analyses, why go into what is what seems like a technical um, description of signs? Uh, we believe uh, that setting out the semiotic organization of differentiation makes it possible to clarify not only our own cases, but how other cases work. And it lets one think about wider issues. How is domination related to differentiation? How a political contestation and, on the other hand, solidarity are uh, related to signs, to communication? How is cognition related to differentiation? So how should we understand this is something that puzzled me from the beginning of our work. How should we understand the relationship between these very abstract sign processes that I will describe in a minute uh, that we have been uh, proposing and the social worlds that they organize? Um, we came up with several helpful metaphors. Sign relations are the armatures of social life. You don't see them as separate, but they hold up the sculpture of social life. Sign relations are like the colors that constitute a plaid fabric. You can't separate the colors from the plaid, but they constitute them. So the signs like armature and colors constitute and organize the social world that we perceive. And once you see the organizational principles, you discern why and how people are persuaded by and act 
or take for granted the sign relations, how they respond to them in making, in understanding and in reacting to value regimes. Value regimes themselves are actually made by these sign relations. Now, conjecturing, as I mentioned in, in the introduction, in discussing our introductory paragraph, involves picking out something that might be a sign, contrasting it with the background, positing some relationship to what it might point to, and then in a very important meta move, not just recognizing a sign and its object, but noticing that they are connected to each other. So this means, in a very fundamental way, there are no signs in themselves. It might sound counterintuitive, but signs are the results of this relationship, acts and meta-acts of conjecture. It is, it's important that we ourselves actually make the sign relations that we notice. That is, I don't mean just Judy and me, but everybody who participates in social life. So we make the sign relations that we notice. Yet, after we do this, the work of doing so is erased. It seems as though our guesses had nothing to do with creating the sign relations. It seems as though they exist and stand outside of, them, of ourselves, that they stand by themselves. And this is a very strong impression that people have, that signs stand outside of themselves. So it's all the more important to recognize how we ourselves are involved in making signs. Conjectures reflect the social locations and vantage points of those who make them. And there are always many vantage points, many perspective stances in any social group, no matter how small. Conjectures always occur in a chain, a chain of interpretive responses. Knowledge grows as you communicate in these chains. So let me give you a brief example from the book of a chain of conjectures. Suppose you're walking down the street on your morning um, uh, walk on your block in the city. And you notice a dark spot on the pavement. <clears throat> what is it, you might ask, as, I, as, as one often does? Is it paint? You notice that the grass on the lawn next to the spot all seems to be wet. And that could be an iconic sign. Iconism is similarity. Similarity between the pavement and the grass. Both suggesting wetness. Okay, conjecture. What would be the, they're both wet. One is the sign of the other. What could, be, what could the wetness be an indexical sign of? That is, what could have caused it? Hmm, could be rain from earlier in the day, or kids playing with water balloons, or maybe the neighbor sprinkling the lawn. Now, if it's the neighbor's sprinkler, then your next conjecture might depend on whether water is plentiful or not. It also would be indexical of you because conjectures can also be signs for the next round of conjecture. Do you care about water use? Is there a drought? You might disapprove of sprinkling the sidewalk if there's a drought. And you might judge your neighbor as a thoughtless person if that were so. That judgment is an indexical sign of you, suggests hmm, you might be an environmentalist and you might be getting angry at the neighbor. But what if you then realize it wasn't water at all on the pavement, just paint? Well, then you need to recalibrate what you've been making of these signs. So there are a number of lessons from this chain of conjectures. First, look at how fast we got from a spot on the sidewalk to political differences and tension, anger among people, even without any talk. And see how communication and knowledge are intertwined, right? both what you know already and what you find out from what you take to be a sign. 
Note how indexical and iconic signs work together. We had some iconic, some indexical, and back and forth. Notice also uh, the interested perspectival aspect. Judy and I, uh, as Judy has already mentioned, wanted to discover how people with different starting points can use the same impeccable semiotic logic to reach divergent conclusions. In fact, to sort of live in different worlds, in different cultural ontologies, despite the same semiotics. Now, in the course of making chains of conjectures, making sign relations, guesses do a lot of different kinds of semiotic work. They do them simultaneously, but we thought it was really useful to separate out what they do. We call them semiotic tasks. Typification is one such task. The spot on the pavement was a real-life experience that has to be identified as a case of some abstract type of thing, a token-type relation. Is it wetness? Is it a paint color? Right. So it, it isn't self-evident what something that you perceive as a, as a, as a real-life experience counts as. Conjectures also identify similarity and contiguity, that is, iconic and indexical relations. What makes similarity, that is, iconism, depends on the conjecturing person's cultural knowledge and situation. The philosopher Nelson Goodman has a great thought experiment. I love this one. Three beakers stand in a row, two with colorless liquid, one with red liquid. Now, you are asked, which two are similar? Well, most people will pick the two colorless ones and sim as similar, unless you know that one of the colorless ones is water and the other is hydrochloric acid, and you're thirsty for a drink. And that really tells us about the, the, the way in which the context and knowledge uh, de defines what is similar and what is not. Now, Peirce himself also has a great thought experiment about how the difference between iconic and indexical signs also depends on knowledge. He says, yardsticks resemble the standard of a yard held in London, and so they do. And you might think that your yardstick and that standard yardstick resemble each other. That is, iconism is what holds them together. But he says the purpose of a yardstick is to get more precision than mere resemblance. So each yardstick is in fact copied from the standard in London or from some other one that was copied from it. And that means yardsticks are not icons, but a chain of indexes with real contiguity among them. So what you know decides the ground or type of sign relation a conjecture recognizes. Conjectures do also erasure. Each step I've mentioned requires not noticing or ignoring an awful lot of features of the world. But all the sign activity, though, is not yet differentiation. For that, we had to ask some further questions. How do people do comparisons with sign relations? These are more complicated tasks. Creating axes of differentiation with signs, rheumatization, as Judy and I both have mentioned, fractal recursivity, and erasure. In order to get at this, in order to have an example of it that was easy to follow, we took the, um, the case of a 19th century woman named Anne Royale, uh, whose husband was a Revolutionary War commander and slaveholder in Virginia. After his death, she, made, she did a lot of writing about her travels from Virginia to Alabama, then to Boston and back in the first decades of the 19th century. Um, and funnily, she thought that when she went from Alabama to Boston, she was going east, not north. 
And that's a part of the story. But she used the discourses of her time, environmental determinism, nationalism, to explain what she saw. On, so I'm going to give you an example from the book. On one stagecoach ride coming from the West, she looked out from the top of the Appalachian Mountains to the Atlantic, and she characterized the scenery and the people she saw. She said nature to the East was small, the land thin, the animals diminutive, the people full of arrogance and impudence. They speak fast and say nothing. They're concerned only with themselves. The people on the West, she said, are big. Nature is rich, luxuriant, and bold. The people are stout, and they're modest, unassuming. They speak slowly and are generous. So here it is. <laughs> Without our help, she created an axis of differentiation, organizing many qualities. And she projected these as co-constituent qualities onto the landscape, onto animals, people's speech and demeanor. Now, as you know, there's no such thing as small without a big. These are relative qualities. So she made an axis, which is an abstract figure, a big west and a small east as anchor qualities. And at this point, we faced a puzzle. How could these ontologically different things, like landscapes, people, demeanor, speech, all be incorporated in a single contrast? This is the effect that we call rheumatization. She was speaking from her perspective as a Virginia resident in a world where there were coastal cities, the farmland west of the mountains, and then the wild frontier. East and west were not compass points for her, nor were they just indexical signs like landscape. Right now I see that this is an eastern landscape, and now I see it's a western one. One indexes one region or the other. The phenomena on each side of this distinction resembled the qualities of the landscape, iconic, similar to, right? That's resemblance. They were qualitatively contrasting imagined unities. It's a rheumatization that makes such imagined entities and categories seem self-evident. It makes the categories to begin with, and it makes them seem self-evident. People then create just-so stories, origin stories what we call rheumatizing narratives to explain the qualities they perceive. Usually they posit unseen causes for the differences. Sometimes they're environmental ones. For instance, um, Anne Royale talked about 19th century, um, uh, or rather people in the 19th century called about cold, cold weather making people cold. Or uh, she herself talked about inner organs, stories of big-hearted Westerners made for bigness and small-minded Easterners. We call it rheumatization because ream is what Peirce called signs, where conjectures recast the sign relation. Now, what about fractal recursivity, which is another of the overall differentiation process, another aspect of the overall differentiation process? So the contrast of qualities that Anne Royale picked out, that for her distinguished between East and West, were reapplied by her just to those things that were East, so as to subdivide them into another East and West, now all within the previous East. I hope that's not confusing. The same can be done with subdivisions of the West. So when she went to New York, she found the people in New York to be unassuming, simple, modest, and generous, unlike snobby Philadelphia, she said. So she declared New York was just like the West, and she felt really at home there. 
Now, obviously, New York is the East, right? Even for her. But she fractally subdivided her categories as a momentary interpretation. She reiterated the East-West axis within the East, redistributing New York to the West and Philadelphia to the East. Another kind of semiotic, uh, fractal semiotic move, often made by people in that period, was to unify all of the United States as the West, the wild, modest people who have no aristocracy. I hope you recognize that as the U.S. While Europe remained the East, tamer landscape, arrogant people, social hierarchies, aristocracies. We call the second kind of fractal an encompassing recursion because it unites one set of things to oppose them to yet something else. Think of the huge amount of erasure involved in making categories like East and West or actually racial ones or gender ones. It requires ignoring enormous amounts of similarity between the entities. So all Easterners are not arrogant, nor are all Eastern animals small, right? but those are all erased in making these distinctions. Why the term fractal, you might ask? The process recalls making self-similar structures in geometry. But actually, the microcosm reiterated in a macrocosm, which is one way that this can be seen, is a much more ancient idea. Let me also note that recursions are not always dichotomies, nor are dichotomies our idea or our imposition on the data. They seem to be hugely common in the world wherever we have looked. And they are very likely based on cognitive figure and ground, which is a dichotomy, a perceptual one, and also linguistic dictics, such as I and you, which also uh, is a dichotomy. The key point is how self-evident the categories, categories become, how pervasive, as though they exist without our conjecturing. Of course, the qualities arranged on an axis the person types, speech characteristics, whether explained by geography or progress or race or some other master category, these are all changeable and depend on discourses and historical facts of the time. Also, and this is really important, axes also change as people call on them to deal with changing circumstances. So in the U.S., we tracked how the East-West distinction faded a bit and was transformed into a more salient north-south difference over the course of the 19th century. That's something that I think most Americans find much more familiar, the north-south. People argued about the qualities of north and south and what they meant. Relations and similarities between north and south were erased. Even the existence of slavery in the north was erased. So think about this. As method, we first followed a single writer, Anne Royale to show the differentiation process is really robust. It shows up even in a single person's practice. But in tracking from east-west to how it got changed to north-south, we looked at differently located people over 50 years to capture how change happens. Now, so far I've talked about how people make categories and explain them. Remember though that categories can be made into groups or factions, for instance, inside organizations. Uh, Anne Royale wrote as a Westerner, and she always enacted Westernness. But what happens when more is required of a person than enactment? Evans Pritchard described segmentary systems among the New Air that subdivided fighters. In a conflict, you fought for your own category, mobilized as a group, as well as for the higher level category that yours was a part of. 
Now, unlike newer segments, though, people and organizations may be called or even forced to choose which group to join, which side of an emerging fractal, because they all are emergent, as Judy said. Let me give a recent example of this uh, this process um, uh, happening inside an organization. It's from the National Rifle Association, as you probably know, a U.S. gun rights coalition with more than mm, three million members. By this time, it must be five. In 1998, with rising gun murder rates, some critics and the federal government formed a gun control coalition united to make the gun companies more responsible for what they manufacture. The cities together vowed not to buy police equipment from gun makers who do not negotiate some few safety measures on guns. This gun control coalition, I'm calling it that, but that's actually an easy thing to do because that's what they, they were doing, faced off against the NRA's gun rights coalition. That's what they call themselves. Now, the CEO of Smith & Wesson, the country's largest gun manufacturer, was himself an NRA member. Uh, when you read his interviews, he talked the NRA talk. He talked about how he'll die for his guns. In his cold, dead hands, he'll still be holding his guns. But he feared the city's threat could hurt business. So he said he would negotiate as a pragmatist just to save the business. Now, when the NRA found out that he was going to negotiate, they called him a traitor and emailed their members, don't buy Smith & Wesson anymore. Within days, Smith & Wesson got death threats. The CEO resigned. The value of the company went from $112 million down to $15 million in a year. This, for, for our analysis, was a subdividing fractal and a dramatic power move by the NRA. They ident identified a gun maker as being anti-guns. That is, they reiterated an axis of differentiation within the gun rights coalition that separated loyal gunners from supposed anti-gunners who were weirdly and ironically the manufacturers of guns. What an irony that the NRA almost destroyed a major gun maker. This is a semiotics of purification and polarization that our uh, scheme of semiotic processes has a real ability to grasp. So now on to sites from Judy. The third major section of the book begins with the question of where one might locate uh, ideological work. So how do you use the concept of a site to address this? And how do you see that site linking to other sites of ideological work? Uh, okay, this one I will uh, speak about. Uh, we spoke earlier about the move from ideology to ideological work. So in this section of the book, we ask, in doing research, where do you look to see ideological work? And what research strategies can help you find it, uh, observe it, track it? Ideological work involves processes of attention and the semiotic activity that flows from it. Uh, for example, and here I'll indulge in a thought experiment too, uh, imagine a city street. A few people are passing by minding their own business. And then somebody stops, puts on a funny hat, takes some objects out of a bag, and begins to juggle them. 
And some of the passers-by stop to watch. So suddenly we have a new scene with new activity and new uptake. The passers-by shift from civil inattention to focused attention on the performer. There's uptake. Maybe they say something to each other or to the performer. Maybe after a while, the performer puts the hat on the ground and the other people who've now been constituted as audience put coins in it. Maybe people talk about the juggling afterwards, evaluating whether it was well done, whether it's a good sign of civil society and public spaces and the kind of thing that will attract tourists to their city. Or, on the other hand, whether it's a sign of unemployment and poverty, that people like the juggler can't make a living and are reduced to uh, scrounging for pennies by performing juggling and trying to make, get some coins out of it. All of this reflects ideological work by participants who have varied points of view. Uh, and we've probably all seen this sort of thing, the street juggler, street performers, but there's nothing special about this example. In principle, anything that is an object of joint attention is a site of ideological work and can be investigated as such. After all, paying attention to something means, as Sue has talked about uh, just now, uh, means contrasting it with its, with its surroundings as figure and ground. And it means some form of cognizing. Is there a label or expression for this? Are there other things like it? What characterizes it? What do you do with it or about it, if anything? What's the uptake? How do you evaluate it in comparison to its surroundings or to other things? Do such evaluations and uptakes differ from one observer or participant to another? So these are the kinds of things that we are, are asking in following the object of attention and the, the activity that surrounds it and flows from it to see what people say about the object of attention, if anything, to see whether people differ in what they say, what the uptakes are or refusals of uptake, who's doing what. In the first of the chapters in this section of the book, we picked as our initial site something that is a physical object that has actually nothing linguistic on it or in it. It's an office door made of wood um, with a pane of glass inserted at eye level. And then we followed this up. We tracked people's responses, what they did with the door and the stories that they told about the door. So, in the building where this door was located, which was a faculty office building in a large university, there were many doors just like the first one. They were office doors between smallish rooms, the individual offices, and central hallways. We observed that users, people whose offices these were, people who were assigned to those offices, were uh, that they responded to the glass pane in different ways. Some people covered over the glass completely with a cloth or thick paper. Some people covered it more subtly with notices and sign-up sheets, or maybe a coat hung strategically inside where uh, it covered over all or most of the glass. Some people left the glass uncovered. Some people left the door entirely open the whole time they were in the office. There seemed to be a pattern to these responses to the doors. 
somewhat corresponding to the different academic departments that were represented in the building. And various narratives circulated about the faculty in those departments, who welcomed conversation with students or with colleagues, and who were instead lone wolves wanting privacy. Who was concerned with safety and safety from what or from whom? So following the semiotic activity, the behaviors responding to the presence of the glass pane, the labels people assigned to person types and practices involving the offices and their doors, the narratives supposedly explaining why the doors had glass and why various faculty members responded to the doors the way they did, and whether administrators had ideologized views about faculty interaction with students and colleagues, and tracking how those narratives were linked to different sets of occupants of the building. These investigations led us very quickly to different regimes of value and different perspectives, not only concerning faculty, academic disciplines, and students, uh, and staff members for that matter, but also broader social categories of gender, class, and even race. Now I've gone into some detail about the example in that chapter because it illustrates a research strategy that starts from a centerpiece, an object which is an object of joint attention taken up by various people as a sign. That's the initial site. Uh, and the strategy then works outward from that centerpiece through uptakes and labels and explanatory narratives and the differences among these that reveal different points of view. All those uptakes and so on are forms of ideological work, no matter how the original object came about. And in fact, um, in the case of the doors, the origin of the design of office doors in that building and how and why they were installed in the way that they were is actually shrouded in mystery. There are stories about that, but it seems to be impossible to uh, discover whether one of those stories was correct or none of them were. The second chapter in this section of the book takes a similar path, tracking from an initial centerpiece as a site through activities and responses to it. This time the track goes wider, eventually involving history, demography, and regional relations. It very quickly leads to race relations and attitudes and to local and even uh, U.S. national politics. This time, the centerpiece, the initial site, does have something linguistic about it. It's the slogan painted on a bus stop bench in the city of Baltimore. And the slogan is, Baltimore, the city that reads. Our study leads from an initial bench to a set of benches around the city, uh, which were eventually replaced by other benches with a different slogan. Uh, it leads to various people's responses to the benches and to the slogans, to city offices in charge of the benches and their decoration. And this takes us to the political history of the city, especially its mayoral campaigns. Um, in the many kinds of commentaries about the slogan, and the benches that appeared in newspapers and other venues. I tell you, there were 
so many commentaries and so much, many snide remarks about the city that reads, Baltimore, the city that bleeds, Baltimore, the city that reads at a third grade level, and so forth. Um, our personal favorite, Baltimore, the city with delusional park benches. Anyway, um, in the many kinds of commentaries, uh, we could observe sharp differences between insider and outsider points of view. Insider to the city, outsiders to the city who might be living there, but define themselves as only passing through. Sharp differences between uh, black and white residents of the city and, the, and uh, ideas about relations between them, and people's varying support for black and white political candidates. It led us to relations with Washington, with companies that provide city brands, even to presidential politics, because one of the candidates uh, in the 2016 uh, presidential election had been a mayor of the city of Baltimore responsible for um, some of the, of the slogans. The main point of this chapter is to show how the semiotic activity in a site branches outward, leading to other sites, and how these branching relations engage regimes of value, social differentiations, and perspectives on linguistic practices and the social world. The branchings with all the contrasts and the relations across boundaries that are involved in them are what's important. It's a feature of this research strategy that you do not begin by drawing a boundary around what you want to investigate and then look inside it. There's no notion of a bounded universe of data because boundaries and the relations across them are exactly what you're concerned with. It's difference and differentiation. It's not internal homogeneity. Implicit in this method and in this research strategy are changes in scale, and scale is the focus of the third chapter in this section of the book. Scale is implicit in the centerpiece method because you're working outward from particulars to wider networks of linked sites and social relations and the ideas about those. And scale is also inherent in the semiotic analyses we've discussed in earlier sections of the book. So fractal recursivity means that the same contrast distinguishes categories at different degrees of inclusiveness. It's a kind of scale jump using the same differentiating principle for comparing categories that have some other scope. But scalar judgments are interesting in themselves as sites of ideological work. People make scalar judgments all the time. In fact, many languages have scalar evaluations built into the grammar and comparative constructions. English does this, for example, with comparative adjectives. Um, there are other ways English does this, but this is one that's really built in. So for example, uh, this plant is green, this next plant is greener, the third one is greenest of all. This restaurant is good, that one is better, this other one is the best. Such scalar judgments depend on the point of view of the person doing the judging. And they might see, in the case of the restaurant or the plant, they might see the restaurant as better than I see it. So as a, yet another example, the salesperson in a clothing store gushes, that dress is so you, while I disagree. And how does she know anyway, whether it's me or not? 
well, in this chapter, though, we also call attention to some ways that scale is thought of in the social sciences, and the natural sciences, too, for that matter. One way this works is in geopolitical units, town, province, nation, state, and other such categories that are both geographically and politically defined. It's very common to see these units taken for granted as the meaningful scalar framework for social science research. Demographics, economy, language repertoires, and so on uh, can often get assessed within that framework. A difference between this kind of scale and the one about goodness or not of restaurants or you-ness of dresses is that the geopolitical one is not a personal evaluation, at least not usually. Instead, it's subject to legal conventions, uh, international agreements and the like involving officialdom and collective decisions. It's, of course, recognized that national boundaries, sorry, national borders and city limits are things that have been decided by people at some point and can even be altered, uh, but they're institutionalized and changing them can be very complicated and difficult, as is well illustrated by the, the Brexit process, the UK's withdrawal from the European Union. That's been so complex, has taken years, and has consequences that have not yet all played out. Notice, by the way, the tendency for personal evaluations to get swept up by efforts to institutionalize rating scales and monetize them, that's not irrelevant. Systems awarding stars for better restaurants, movies, purchases on Amazon, and so on. Evaluation itself becomes scalar in terms of the evaluating body, how many people or how institutionalized the group of evaluators are. And meanwhile, as we also discuss in the book, there's another kind of scaling that purports to be even further removed from human decision-making and difference of opinion, um, such as the metric system for measuring distances and quantities. It's a system devised to be objective, to be absolute, to be not subject to local particulars or personal whims or differences of perspective. In our book, we call these scaling systems non-perspectival or aperspectival, as opposed to the perspectival ones involved in fractal recursions or in any uh, scales that, um, that depend on point of view and context. Progress in science, whether in natural science or social science, has sometimes been measured, notice scale again, uh, measured in terms of how distanced its framework is from any personal or local or context-specific judgment? How well does it represent some view from nowhere? And we'll even see some of these issues in the next section of the book on linguistic science in the 19th century. So let's turn to that one. Yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing this, this, this great set of research methods. So you mentioned that your penultimate chapter gives us an account of linguistic research in the 19th century. So how were those researchers' agendas shaped by these ideologies of differentiation? I think I'll start on this one. Um, so this chapter was especially fun to write. Um, 
and I'll tell you in a minute why, uh, we did new archival historical research as well as, as, well as including and reanalyzing material which we had each worked on before. And the, the, the major thing I want to emphasize is that we wrote the history of 19th century linguistics in this chapter at a slant, the story of linguistics from the periphery. Ultimately, our point is that the methodological issues and universalist ambitions of linguistics that first emerged in the 19th century are still with us. Universalism is obvious. That's what, that's what linguistics wants to do is uh, develop universals of language. And methodologically, even though we now have wonderful recorders, much of formalist linguistics continues to rely on intuitions, on single informants, and to set aside certain kinds of variation and social context. Of course, much less now than in the heyday of the Chomsky period. So we show in this chapter the ideological roots of all of this. Uh, <clears throat> let me give you some, uh, some, some more detailed uh, background. We discovered to our pleasant surprise that some of the people we had each written about separately, linguists of Eastern Europe and West Africa, of Europe and Africa, actually might have known each other in the tiny world of late 19th century professionalizing linguistics. This was very exciting. So it wasn't just, just Judy and me who were working together. There were these other people a uh, hundred years ago who were also working together. The Hungarian linguist who was of German background, Humfal Vipal, and the Englishman, uh, Robert Needham Cust, might actually have met and talked in Berlin in 1881 at the Fifth International Orientalist Congress. Linguists of the 19th century had their own regimes of value, as do we, but it's easier to see theirs than our own, so we, um, we investigate them instead. They presume that languages are bounded holes arrayed on territory. Because such spatial distributions were pre presumed to be free of human will, they could justify political claims, and there was a lot of that going on in the 19th century. Um, who do these people belong to? Who do those people belong to? The categories that were supposed to explain language structures and their distribution were uh, big, big categories like race, geography, language families, progress and evolution or, civil, or levels of civilization. These presumptions affected how languages were described. And that is one prong of our chapter to talk about the way uh, 19th century linguists described the languages that they encountered but it also affected linguists' own interactions and positions in scholarly societies. Both these aspects, their lives and their descriptions were organized in accord with, with the semiotic principles we have now been talking about. So let me start with the professional lives. Robert Cust wrote about African and actually Indian languages as part of British colonial rule. And he was outraged that there was only a single session at the Orientalist Congress to talk about African languages. And then the only thing they talked about was Egyptian languages. In a, quite a similar way, Hunfalvi wrote about the little peoples of Siberia, those that were identified as Finno-Ugric and so presumed to be related to Hungarian and Finnish. And he was outraged that Max Müller, the most prestigious linguist at the Congresses, claimed that these languages were primitive and had, could have no family relationships. So Cust and Humfalvi were marginalized. Africa and Siberia were in effect, in effect excluded from the world of professional linguistics. But this exclusion turned out to be a huge problem for the ambitions of the discipline as a whole. 
19th century linguists wanted to create a universal theory of language, an objective view from nowhere that would describe and explain all human languages as parts of a single overarching framework, race, evolutions, and so on. For that, they needed all languages, including the little people's languages of Siberia, the African languages, as well as even the rural dialects of Europe. So quite ironically, German and French linguists found that to upscale linguistics, and this gets back to what Judy was talking about, scaling. So to make it objective as a supposed view from nowhere, to upscale linguistics into universals, they had to pay attention to the missionaries who analyzed African languages and to colleagues outside the Western European academic hierarchy. In fact, to Kust and Hunfalvi. But there was also a methodological problem. There was a problem of how to describe unwritten languages of tribal Siberia and Africa with the only tools that linguists in the 19th century had, and that was the intellectual remnants of classical and biblical philology, which because they worked with written materials, presumed clear language boundaries because the, the text themselves made the, the, the boundaries. They ignored variation unless that variation occurred in the text. And this meant that work with single informants, creating corpuses by choosing bounded speech genres like proverbs and rituals, is what even those who are working with unwritten languages kind of focused on. And also they focused on very tired hands because transcription remained a huge problem throughout the 19th century. Well, yes, throughout the 19th century. Of course, not all West European linguists took the same view of unwritten languages. Hugo Schuchardt, for instance, who was a German who lived in Austria, fought against race-based categorizations and dismissed the neo-grammarians' focus on boundaries. He insisted that all languages are mixed and really going against the, the conventions of the entire discipline, he urged a methodology that would focus on creoles, dialect chains, spoken language in ordinary life like the slang of soldiers and shopkeepers the cross-influences of multilingualism in the Habsburg Empire. And quite similarly, Georg Wenker, the European dialectologist, rejected dialect boundaries on the basis of empirical evidence and because he realized that national ideology um, could be strengthened by looking for national unities, not regional ones. So, so much for linguist professional lives. Uh, Judy will talk about their descriptions of where they of, of the of the the populations that they studied but let me first say one word about the second prong how processes of differentiation shaped linguistic descriptions the hungarian and finnish linguists who went to siberia to locate the finno-ugric speaking herders and fishers they posited as their kin managed to find in their tribal myths and rituals in siberia the characteristics the linguists understood to be features of their own European national stereotypes. In contrast, Hungarians found aggressive, brave, martial people, which is what they understood themselves to be, in contrast to the Finns. They saw the contrast, but so did the Finns. The Finns found calm, peaceful, and hardworking folk. In short, in short, they found the axes of differentiation, rheumatization, and fractal recursivity that we've been talking about. So now I hand it over to Judy to talk about the Af African material. <laughs> um, yes, well, throughout this chapter, as Sue has said, and regarding Africa as well as other world regions, 
Um, we see the ways that people doing linguistic research in the 19th century were scaling up, reaching toward global classifications while also confronting the difficulties of recording and analyzing languages on the ground. Uh, that is, ways of speaking that had not been studied by Western outsiders before. And by the way, I do want to emphasize that the task of doing that, of doing linguistic analysis totally from scratch and without fancy audio recording equipment is really hard. Uh, so it's important sometimes to see past the flaws and possible blinders, not that they weren't there, but to see past them to recognize the talent and perception that some of these researchers had. Um, but we all have ideologized assumptions about how languages work and how to describe them, and so had these people. Well, an obvious point about 19th century linguistic research in Africa is the way in which it was affected by these global classifications that were accepted at the time as givens, but now are questioned not only in themselves, such as race, uh, racial classification as some uh, biological necessity, uh, but also questioned as to whether they have anything whatsoever to do with language. And race is a conspicuous one. But so was cultural difference, uh, difference in way of life. So, for example, nomadism as opposed to settled farming, or religion as a, as a large-scale organizing principle, um, difference between uh, animism, Islam, Christianity, and so forth. Uh, family organization, political organization, uh, these kinds of societal features could be, or so the researchers thought, could be placed on a scale of cultural evolution from the most primitive to the most civilized. It was simply assumed by many scholars at the time that these features would all be consistent, including race, so that the societies and peoples and languages of the world could be placed on some single ranked scale unproblematically. Of course, it wasn't unproblematic at all. Uh, within Africa, some scholars took race as such a dominant factor that any languages that didn't seem quite to fit some particular scheme contrasting primitive, primitive simplicity with civilizational complexity uh, must be attributable to race mixture. Other scholars disagreed. Some of those relied on religion detecting the influence of Islam in spoiling the structures of God-given original languages, for instance. And some researchers emphasized family systems. They supposed that grammatical gender systems in language must be a reflection of gender relations in family organization. And since European languages had grammatical gender, then any African languages that did must be higher than those that didn't, along with their speakers regardless of skin color and hair form. And they got into some, uh, uh, they had to do a bit of um, uh, somersaulting intellectually in order to, uh, to place some of those uh, African languages as higher than others because of having grammatical gender. Uh, and some researchers simply ignored evidence that must have been available to them evidence of written literatures, for, for instance. So, for example, the missionary author of one of the first big dictionaries of Swahili averred that the language had never been written before he was doing it. And yet, 
Swahili already had a large literature, poetry, history, religious texts written in Swahili in Arabic script, and so did some other African languages. Uh, while not all researchers claimed there was no such writing, they almost all effectively erased it from consideration. Yet another factor troubling universal schemes was which European power gained control over which part of Africa. And here we can see how the rivalries between European powers were reenacted in descriptions of people, languages, and territories. So German scholars found little Germany in Africa with its forests and its tall, brave inhabitants, as opposed to the supposedly lazy and cowardly inhabitants of the neighboring French-dominated zone and the languages that went along with these different qualities. British scholars working in British colonies ignored or denied linguistic commonalities between African languages in their region and those in the French colonies. And those differentiations persisted for many decades in the linguistic literature on Africa, long into the 20th century, perhaps even beyond. Our chapter concludes by pointing to the 19th century assumption that differentiations of language, people, culture, and territory would identify consistent units, rankable on some scale of development with major standardized European languages at the top. In linguistics, there's been some shift of this image of internally consistent unities to the more abstract domain of grammatical structure. And yet, many linguists still rely on classifications of uh, so-called ethno-linguistic groups that retain many of the older assumptions, if not the conspicuous racial or evolutionary scales. Debates about variability and what it means about the relationships of peoples to linguistic practices and about the methods for studying and defining languages, even about language itself as a human capacity, continue to engage the discipline. Thank you for that. It's such a rich uh, historical account too. Um, so this takes us to the very last chapter of your book, which is titled Avenues of Inquiry. Where do you envision the insights from your book being applied? Who's starting this one? Judy. I am. Okay. So, so we sat down after having finished writing the, the whole book and we thought, oh, well, you know, we don't really want to do a, 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 any kind of summary at this point, but rather to engage basically younger researchers, younger people who are just starting out um, to kind of... Uh, point to uh, various things that could be done that would take this, um, this set of questions and this, this set of, of theoretical conceptual materials uh, further. So <clears throat> one of the things that we talked about, uh, I, I think Judy is going to talk more about this, but I think the notion of uh, a centerpiece and working from a centerpiece outward is something that's really valuable as a methodological question. And then we had a whole bunch of other things. I'll name a couple of them that I think it would be really interesting. Um, uh, social action can be always created around any contrast. And I think it would be great if people thought about the way group and category are different, however, in principle. However, one can create group action by creating a new category. And we see this around us all the time. Um, I, I, I will think of a couple of, um, 
uh, what benign ones, but you can also think of some really um, troubling ones. So diagnostic categories of sickness end up um, giving the uh, the wherewithal for people who have that sickness and their and their kin to form groups of advocates for research on those um, illnesses. We know about this a lot. I mean, AIDS is sort of the the um, poster child for that, but it's happening with all sorts of other illnesses. Subdivisions of any general activity, eating, for instance, can end up forming subdivisions that end up being groups like the vegetarians versus vegans versus farm to fork. And they very nicely, if you if you look at them, form fractal recursions and rheumatizations. What kind of person is a vegetarian, for instance, as opposed to other kinds of eaters? Categories of connoisseurship in wine or other alcoholic consumption famously, there's been a lot of work on this, even on coffee, for instance, um, uh, famously uh, can form groups around the category. So, so do categories of expertise. Um, this happens even in anthropology, for instance, if there's a new methodology, an interest group forms within the AAA, and then ultimately they might um, uh, even break off and make a whole learned society that is focused on just that kind of methodology and what it can produce. So one can grow identities of, cat- of uh, a category identities basically endlessly and often for market reasons. And I think that this is something that is a wide open um, set of questions um, and explorations where some work has been done, but other work remains. Um, and of course, as soon as uh, you find categories and groups, you find boundaries, boundaries, and you will always find oversteppers of those boundaries and defenders of those boundaries. Um, one of the metaphors um, for overstepping boundaries is the translation, as which is being used a lot in anthropology these days. Um, we can always think about how differences are made, but then they're also unmade. How do people break them? And then with encompassing fractals, how do people unify earlier divisions um, to make new um, uh unities and new distinctions. The one that we mention, and I think that it's um, everywhere these days, is the notion of non-binary gender, which undermines masculinity and femininity, but non-binary gender um, is also simultaneously opposed to anybody who wants to define masculinity and femininity, forming an encompassing uh, fractal. Some of my uh, students have been writing about this. So, Uh, The social process of how people enforce categories versus how they break them down seems a really open area for research. I'll just stop there. Um, Yeah, okay, I'll take this up and and just focus on some of the methodological issues that we hope would would provide interesting further directions for, for research in not only linguistic anthropology, but also in other fields. Um, so uh, one really important thing that is the focus of our book in so many ways is taking contrasts and boundaries as the focus of analysis rather than its limits. And we've talked about this in many ways. It uh, is enacted in the strategy of identifying a centerpiece as an object of joint attention, as something from which to work outward tracking uptakes and lack of uptake too, 
tracking commentaries and semiotic moves that link to other sites, um, where always the differences, the relations between the one site and the next one uh, are what you're looking for. And then paying attention to what is not said, to connections someone does not draw as well as what is said. And this is part of contrast, of part of comparing points of view. Uh, one way a difference in points of view shows up is in what people talk about and what they don't, in what one person emphasizes and another ignores, in the difference between uptake and lack of uptake, expected uptake and its refusal. And uh, then also recognizing that researchers and the people they study are not engaged in utterly different activities. And we hope that, um, that research in the future is taking this point uh, into account, that both researchers and folks they're studying are trying to make sense of what's going on in their social worlds, to interpret the activities and the practices that they observe and in which they participate. While you and the people you study, you are researchers here, uh, while you bring different biographies and experiences and agendas to the table, you're engaging in an interpretive activity along with them. And their interpretations are certainly not all alike. So the contrast between your interpretation and theirs is far from the only interpretive difference that matters. And finally, we still work in a research world in which many people think what you're doing is interviewing people, and that the interview is a window into their minds and you are the scientist distilling what they say. I would hope to see research that attends to semiotic activity of many kinds, that does not bound language off from the gestures, positions, and lives of its speakers, uh, but doesn't ignore language either, um, that doesn't uh, assume that people you interview are all alike and that interviewing is the, the only way to go. Uh, and that looks at activities of talk as people pursuing social projects that have backgrounds and consequences. And I would like to leave it at that. Thanks so much for laying that out. Uh, it will surely be very generative for lots of researchers. So, so we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we finish the podcast, maybe you can tell our listeners about what kinds of projects you're working on now. Judy, you want to start? <laughs> well, um, I have a few, uh, oh, I don't know, leftover project things, writing things involving ideologies of language, but otherwise I'm trying to turn to... the some of the work in South Africa that has occupied me for the past few years um, and historical work in particular. So I have a, uh, a project on ideologies of language as they pertain to the time of Shaka Zulu and uh, the aftermath of his rule. Sue? Ah, uh, yes. Well, I've gotten in the last few years very interested in various forms of translation, and that's what I've been writing about and, um, and continue to do, not just between languages, but between registers as ways of translation as a form of making knowledge. 
as a form of expanding forms of knowledge and especially as making authority for the knowledge practices that one proposes. And um, this fits in with, uh, as well with, um, with a related interest I have in right-wing discourses that are spreading around the world really, really quickly because they too are looking for and often finding forms of authority uh, and count as new knowledge practices. So that's what I've been uh, working on. East European, but also elsewhere, but East European uh, right-wing discourses and forms of translation in uh, academic and um, intellectual life. That's it. That's wonderful. Uh, Dr. Irvine, Dr. Gall, thank you so very much for writing this important book and for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. Thank you.